Welcome to the Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians podcast. GSASEP represents emergency physicians who work in the federal government, including active duty military, National Guard, and military reserves, as well as the Veterans Administration, Indian Health Service, and other federal agencies. Our mission is advancing emergency care for America's heroes. In this podcast, we bring you lectures and conversations with leaders in federal emergency medicine to help you better care for your patients and lead your departments. The views expressed on this podcast are personal views and do not represent the views of the Department of Defense, any branch of the military, or the federal government, and they do not constitute endorsement of any product by any of these entities. So where are you now? You're in St. Louis? Yes. All right. Was that a home for you or how did you end up there? Well, this is uh, where my wife is from. This, ah. this is where I trained at Barnes Jewish Hospital and I was she's familiar with the area, so we uh you know, we went to Wright State and I was program director there for three years and that was enough. And so we <laughs> had, had a chance for you know, to be a bedside guy again and run a department. So here I am. I'm at the VA. That's fantastic. How are you liking the VA? Best best work I've ever done. That's awesome. And and we are so lucky when we have good docs that come there and really uh, bring that level of service up. Well, the best is the uh, veterans are really resilient. <laughs> <laughs> Very <laughs> true. They're 13 and two, back-to-back World War champions. That's pretty good. (laughs) It's very very difficult to harm any of them. And they they get riddled with disease, and uh, they keep on chugging. It's amazing. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your background, Dr. Feig. Hi. My name is Ed Feig. I'm in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I'm the director of the emergency department at John Cochran VA Hospital. I've been practicing uh, for almost 40 years. I'm boarded in both family and emergency medicine. And I uh, spent 28 years on active duty in the Air Force. And I did a wide variety of things, including uh, two years on a company in Korea, about 18 months in Afghanistan, and seven or eight months in Iraq. So I've been around the block some. Well-traveled. And you and I ran across each other at Travis when you were out there as a master clinician. That's right. That was shortly, I think, before you went to Wright-Patterson. Good times, yes. Excellent. Well, thank you again so much for coming and talking with us today. I really wanted to talk with you a little bit about those 18 months that you've spent in Afghanistan. And also, um, I just spent some time last week talking with uh, Dr. Steve Sample, who was a residency classmate of mine. And we both deployed to Afghanistan and spent some time reflecting on the differences between those two wars because they felt pretty different to us. And so somewhere along the way today, we may touch on that as well. Right. Well, I I had two tours in Afghanistan. The second one was mostly on a research team, but I was with the British in Bastion and I worked in their trauma, uh, you know, center for, you know, about five, six months, but it was a previous uh, deployment, which was unique because that was a one year remote outside the wire tour embedded training team embedded mentors with the Afghans. So that's the uniqueness of my expertise working with the Afghans because I I was in their hospital 
and uh, working with them day to day. We lived with a little fob that was right outside the ANA base, which was near Kandahar. And uh, I was in there every day and trying to help them, you know, uh, stand up a, a combat support hospital. And uh, that was for the 205th ANA Corps, which was a camp hero in Afghanistan. And it was uh, a very unique experience, the way they, uh, the way they practice medicine, the way they take care of things, the way they think about things. And um, it's like, uh, I mean, it's wildly outdated, decades. And yet it's functional and it is what they do and it's how they do things. And um, I didn't, they didn't work for me. I just gave advice and recommendations. But uh, the, level, uh, the medical care in Afghanistan, particularly for not just only for the ANA, for the soldiers, but also for the populace is very rudimentary. They have minimal access to physicians. There basically are no physicians. And the physicians that there are there are really very sketchily trained. And Did they uh, have a medical system of medical schools or where, did the, where are those physicians coming from? They have uh, medical schools, so-called. Uh, there's at least one in country. And, um, but the, uh, the, the training standards are not recognized worldwide. And so it's pretty easy to uh, get through medical school. And um, like everything else in the country, there's a lot of corruption involved. But there are, people can go through medical school and decide they're an orthopedic surgeon because they're interested in orthopedics and hang out a shingle and say, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. So wow. they really have no special expertise in it. They just have an interest in it. Interesting. And that was, that was true of, of much of it. But the, the important thing is the, if anybody had any health care, it was what the ANA and the Afghan National Army, the Afghan National Security Forces, um, had in place that we developed for them. That was part of the initiative to help build Afghanistan. The populace is um, is much much worse. And as I as I alluded to in that in that thing I answered on the internet was, you know, these uh, they don't they don't have medical problems because they don't go to a doctor because they don't go to a doctor because they don't have a doctor. And um, you know, their main problems are infectious disease and trauma. And both men and women, life expectancy is about 45. So they I never, think. they don't live long enough to get anything that needs any treatment. And if there was treatment, they couldn't afford the treatment and they couldn't get the treatment. And if somebody had abnormal blood pressure and they get 15 days of blood pressure medicine and that's it. I remember that from uh, taking care of local nationals when I was there in Bagram, a 50 year old Afghan was ancient. Yep you almost never saw them. They're like 90 or a hundred year olds here. And exactly. They do not have, they don't have heart disease. They don't have cancer. They don't even have lung disease because you know, they, most of them don't smoke, but, uh, but they do have malaria. They got parasites and they have lots of trauma and uh, lots of injuries and have access to a primary care physician for somebody to deal with some of these things is uh, almost negligible. One of the things that you mentioned that you had sent me um, in the preparatory material for this was you all were not allowed to care for any patients. Tell me about that. Well, we didn't have any direct responsibility, and, and the rule was that never get between the patient and, and the Afghan physician, the Afghan healthcare worker, whoever it was. Uh, it turned out we did care for a lot of patients because there was no choice, because we have multiple mass casualties and things like that. But for the most part, 
you know, we were there. I was the only physician. There was a nurse there. There was some x-ray techs, lab techs, um, you know, an administrator, kind of um, a pharmacist. But all we were trying to do was to give them advice and recommendations on how to run a hospital, how to equip it, how to supply it, how to staff it, how to process casualties and and um, and try to help them with that. We had an anesthesiologist. We had a, a nurse anesthetist for a while. So, I mean, we had, it was just like kind of like a, so skeleton crew, about 13 people of all the specialties, and we were their mentors. And we'd, um, uh, you know, there are a lot of a lot of anecdotes, a lot of stories I won't bore you with, but uh, I'd be glad to send you my briefing slide. But the way they did things, it's just, it's just, it's not what we do. Let's put it that way. I'm sure that was frustrating in a lot of ways to to see that and hard to see that difference. It was very difficult to give advice when you knew they were doing the absolute wrong thing and uh, without offending them. At the same time, it was really, really, I don't want to say entertaining, but it's just stunning and eye-opening. You know, you're just, you're uh, what they're doing, and uh, but it's what they do. And it's interesting because we really, here in the United States, rely a lot on internet and communications, and, and we're hopefully making that leap from understanding and clinical um, research to clinical practice. I think I've seen uh, studies that said that usually the gap between when we see something in the literature and when it's actually in clinical practice used to be around 17 years, and we're hoping to narrow that down. It sounds like it's a lot longer there. Well, yeah, it's a lot of stuff I was told. I don't know if this is true or not, but I was told a lot of stuff that's in their healthcare system came from the Russians way, way back in, you know, decades ago. And they were still kind of practicing those kind of standards from those days. And there was stuff that even I recognized that we stopped doing decades ago, but they were still doing it. Sure. You talked a little bit about how hard it was not to offend them. Tell me. Tell me a little bit more about that and how you worked with the, were you working mostly with the physicians, the administrators? How do you start to try to build a program that way? Well, that, you know, I was the mentor for the physicians. There was a nurse, a nurse mentor for the nurses, an administrator for the nurse. And so we were all working together as a team in various, you know, various uh, uh, activities throughout the day. But most of it was, you know, I'd go to their their uh, sick call clinic with them. I was there in the emergency department when traumas came in, and and I helped organize getting the helicopters to land and and uh, bringing patients direct from Kandahar. We take a team and go over to Kandahar with the Canadians and and screen people right on the helipad and put people on an Afghan ambulance and bring them straight over to the uh, to the uh, ANA hospital. <clears throat> you know, obviously there were Afghans. There were, some were civilians, some were ANA or ANP soldiers that were injured. But um, you know, I mean, well, they um, they're very diligent. They they want to learn. They want to understand how to do things. You know, they they'd never done a lumbar puncture before. Didn't had no idea what it was. They never put in a central line before. They never. There's a lot of things they they uh, they weren't appreciative of general anesthesia. And, uh, you know, the, the sanitary conditions and things that were st- how we sterilize things. All they had was a little dental unit that sterilized the instruments. Most of the instruments were rusty and they just kind of wash them down with some alcohol. I mean, it was functional. That's how they that's how they did it. And uh, they took care of wounds very peculiarly. And, 
Um, so yeah, you don't want to, uh, they, they know what they want to do. And mm-hmm. so you, know, you give a little advice on maybe you want to try this, maybe you want to try that. Well, there, there also, there were a lot of civilians that would end up there in the NA hospital because they knew that Americans were there. And so they wouldn't be getting care in a, in an Afghan hospital, which is also very rudimentary. I mean, you know, Mirwais hospital in Kandahar city had an ICU, which was the only reason it was ICU. It had a bottle of oxygen. And it had one pulse oximeter that made the ICU. I mean, there was no, there was no ice, there was no critical care, no ICU care at all. They just some place to, to to stack people. And um, so some of the civilians would would learn about the base, and they would come straight out in their private cars or in an ambulance, and um, you know, hoping to get care. I mean, little kids with with retinoblastoma and uh, you know, life threatening burns. You know, and then you know, for example, the, the uh, you know, the Afghan surgeons, they wanted to treat a major burn, you know, full thickness, 70% burn in a kid with Lasix. Yes, this kid needs lots of Lasix. No, he actually needs fluids. <laughs> Different than our ways? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that must have been really difficult. And, and it's a little bit hard because we'd like to judge them based on our standards. And I remember... I remember when I was there, um, there was a child that was brought in that was incredibly sick. Um, and earlier in the rotation or earlier rotations before us, um, baby was born with hydrocephalus and one of the neurosurgeons put in a shunt and kiddo shunt got infected. And so they came back and they took the shunt out and told the family, come back, you know, give them antibiotics and then come back in a month. And we'll put it back in. And they disappeared for almost a year and then showed up during my rotation and brought in this child who had absolutely uncontrolled hydrocephalus. It was the most amazing thing that I'd ever seen. Febrile to 105, obtunded, incredibly dehydrated, super sick child with ventriculitis at that point. And I remember conversing with a family through the interpreter saying, this child isn't going to make it. The best we can do is to have you take him home and make him comfortable. And they said, no, you keep him. We'll go make, we'll go. We have others. I remember wanting to judge that family, but then trying to remember that it's hard to judge another culture based on what we are. And I'm sure that probably happened a lot for you. Yes, it did. I mean, you know, they don't have the same Western values. I think that's one of the, the main problems we have about trying to, uh, you know, nation build in Afghanistan with people who really don't want to be nation built. They don't want what we want. And, uh, you know, we're kind of imposing on them because we think they would want what we want. You know, they want water parks and free schools and uh, McDonald's and they don't want any of that. So it was very difficult to uh, to adapt to that culture. And, and of course, it's extremely religious culture. So they everything that happens there is not somebody's fault. You know, I mean, nobody makes a mistake. It's all God's will. And inshallah. if it happens this way, then it happens. Then inshallah, you know, that's 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 what that's what they believe, and then, and uh, that's their that's their culture. Yeah, talk a little bit more about the things that you found in that culture because you certainly lived it a lot more than those of us who were, you know, on a base by being more embedded in that cult in that. Um, in the civilian population, what things did you notice about that culture? What did you learn about it? 
they, they have no problem with having 20 or 30 patients, an inpatient, all inpatients in the hospital, some needing care, some not needing care, but some just boarding. But they have no difficulty just leaving them. I mean, leaving the hospital empty at night. And they would, they would get on the bus, they'd go back to the barracks, and, you know, these people live in the hospital, and hopefully they'll be fine in the morning or they won't be. But it doesn't matter. They don't, they're not worried about it. I've heard that from other physicians that they would leave on, I think it was Thursday night, because if I remember correctly, Friday was their holy day. That's right. And you'd come back two days later, and whoever was still there, you took care of them again. Saturday is their Monday, and, and Friday is their, you know, our Sunday. And they would take off on Thursday night. Friday was the holiday. And sometimes if there was a holiday, I mean, like a, a real uh, Muslim holiday, they'd be gone for weeks. They'd go back to their, their home. And uh, we wouldn't, we'd, where'd they go? Well, they went home. I mean, they just, it's really kind of uh, frustrating because you're trying to, you're trying to build something and it's, and it's, uh, you know, it's like one step forward and two steps back to get them to, you know, try to take ownership and have, you know, work ethic and pride in what they're doing. But they just, they did not, it just really didn't have it. I mean, some did, of course, and <clears throat> some were very, uh, very enthusiastic and wanted to learn and wanted to study. I mean, a couple of surgeons we helped. I talked to one of them just a few days ago. In fact, I've talked to several of my interpreters. Three of them I got back. I'm working on three others to get them back, special immigrant visas. And uh, some of them back here for years. But I talked to a surgeon who was there, who was just basically self-trained. He wanted to be a surgeon, so he learned how to do it. And he's now the uh, the, the medcom commander of of the defunct now defunct ANA. But he's in um, he's in Kabul, and he's kind of a big shot. And he's he's trained himself, and he's training a lot of other doctors. So, you know, inch by inch, you know, yeah. journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step, and and they were doing that pretty much. So, well, and I we were probably about the same 100 and 150 years ago, and we've had uh-huh. so much opportunity. Um, to grow and hopefully their time will be a little shorter to get to where, what we think of as, as the, the way that medical care should be, should be done. Yes. It's very challenging. I mean, it's almost like uh, the Taliban, you know, they want to live in the seventh century and that's what they want to do. And they're happy as a clam doing it. And uh, I mean, they don't have running water. They don't have heat in their homes. They don't have, and uh, I mean, they have the Quran, they have their families, and that's all they need. And uh, for them to try to, now, the intelligentsia, of which there are many, educated, and the, the interpreters, they're smart enough to know they have to get out. And that's exactly what they're doing. So the people who could build that country are leaving in droves. I remember thinking that in Iraq as well, that the, the people that are needed to rebuild a country after that type of war have either fled or been killed and who is left to rebuild. That's a, that's a hard question. Exactly. You know, and I think what you were talking about with people just going home at the end of the day really puts into perspective our staffing shortages here in the United States. Um, Right here in the middle of COVID, we, we are struggling uh, with nursing staffing and so far we haven't just left the hospital empty yet. No, we haven't. (laughs) I mean, our culture is to help everybody as best we can all the time. And that's what we do. And um, 
you know, we don't want anybody to suffer, anybody to die unnecessarily. You know, is it perfect? No, but over there, they're really pretty comfortable doing exactly what they want to do. Refugee healthcare is an entirely uh, separate topic, but can you talk a little bit about taking care of Afghan patients and, and things that you've learned that can help us all do better when we run across these patients? Well, the one thing very sensitive is the women. The women cannot be examined by another man. It's, it's virtually impossible. And uh, number one, they won't allow it. And, and number two, they don't, they wouldn't, uh, they'd be very offended if a man tries to do a, an exam on a woman. Um, and we had some of those are pretty dicey trying to find a female physician or any kind of female provider. And, um, and that's not just, you know, we think of, I'd like to have a female for my pelvic exam. That's just heart and lungs. That's any type of exam, right? Anything, anything, even to touch them. You can't even, can't touch them. You can't look at them. You can't dress them. Everything is, you know, they take offense to it theoretically. So that was always very challenging. The, um, the physician, most of the linguists, the interpreters were all physicians, so-called, trained in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. They were all pretty smart guys. They had, they could speak English pretty well, but their their understanding of medical care, likewise, you could tell because I can communicate with them directly, and they would interpret for me. We had, had lectures regularly every week, and you know, this most of the stuff they didn't know. Um, they're very smart guys. They're as educated as you could be in Afghanistan, and one of them is. Uh, two, one's an EMT over here now, paramedic. He's in Houston. Another one is a is a nurse who's in Virginia. Another one is a is a I think he's a blue collar worker in in um, in Buffalo. But you know, none of their care is recognized from Afghanistan. Even if they had the papers when they come over here. I'm right now. I'm working on a urologist. He's a really good guy. He was he was a, he was a good surgeon. He came from uh, from um, from Kabul, from the National Military uh, Hospital, and they would come down to Kandahar for a few months at a time and go back. So his brothers in California were trying to get him back, but he has, like as most families in Afghan, Afghanistan do, they got eight children. And that's the average number of kids in one family. So he's trying to come back with a wife and eight children, and he's, you know, he's, you know probably in his 50s. They don't know their age, by the way. I, I presume you're aware of that. They have no idea what their when their birthday was or when. So they're all born on the first of January. So, so we so- actually had something very funny about that. One of my medics when I was there, um, because we, you know, we need two patient identifiers for all of our computer systems. So we had trauma names, and then we would guess how old they were, and we would use that as the date that they, you know. You looked about 20 years old, so we subtracted 20, so you were born in 2001. And then the date of your injury or the date you were admitted was your month and your day of birth. And one of my medics had no idea that was going on and said, isn't it terrible that all these Afghan patients are getting hurt on their birthday? (laughs) I said, no, that's not how that worked. (laughs) It's very funny. (laughs) But you're right. It's just a guess. They do not recognize their birthday. And so, yeah, it's it's hard to guess, but they have to have a birthday to function in the United States. So most of the ones I know are all the first of January in some random year. And yep. uh, ironically, I'm on Facebook with all these people and I get all these birthday notices for all the first of January. <laughs> <laughs> birthday, so-and-so birthday. Anyway. Um, that's great. So that's, that, that's another uh, uh, 
kind of a stumbling block. But anyway, the these guys are under the expectations. Well, I'm a physician. I've been practicing for 20 years. I can come back to the United States and I'll be a doctor here. Well, that's uh, virtually impossible. You're going to have to find something else to do, and you're going to have to start over. And it's a, and it's a, uh, it's a, it's going to be extremely difficult. You talked a little bit about um, healthcare of women, and I actually had an inter- had a, several interesting experiences um, that I'd like to mention for the female physicians out there, because males often did not want to be examined or cared for by a female physician, and we sometimes see that. But I remember very clearly one time. My one of my colleagues who was a female anesthesiologist was trying to extubate someone and was trying to tell him to cough and take a deep breath. And so she would she was trying to get the interpreter to teach her how to say, take a deep breath in. I believe it was Dari was the patient's um, language. And she would say, tell me how to say it. And the interpreter would tell the patient. And she said, no, I want you to teach me. And he finally told her you are not allowed to give a patient, you are not allowed to give a male instructions or commands. And I still remember that so clearly as, again, that culture mismatch of gender dynamics that we didn't even think about. Yeah, it is very peculiar. And uh, I just saw a news news brief that uh, they asked the guy who is the so-called president or whatever of Taliban said, how come there's no women in government? How, how come you don't have women involved in your thing? And, you know, aren't half the population women? And he said, he said, we don't consider women to be people. You know, they're not part of the government. You know, women stay home and make babies. And that's pretty much it. I think that's one of the hardest things about watching this all happen because even while we were there, I was there in 2013, women were still very much a part of that society that was not allowed to join into much. But girls were able to go to school. We did see some women in the hospital, um, not working, but they would come in for medical care. I am very sad and, and think that that is probably going to change a lot and that those women who had those opportunities, that's now gone. And yet it is their way. It is their culture. And it is what the, uh, is what the, uh, the Quran tells them and Sharia law tells them. And that's what they're going to do. And unfortunately that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is probably the, uh, you know, the repudiation of the people who break those rules and what's, what's going to happen on a, on a large scale. I mean, there's no question about it. They did, they did it before. Yeah. And uh, I mean, they're, uh, I mean, you know, <clears throat> only one in five Afghans can read and write. Mm-hmm. They, can't, they can't read. They have no, they, you know, they're complete mercy of, you know, their the desert and their environment and what they do. And they're, they're trying to uh, keep their family alive, keep it fed and, you know, try to keep from against going from warring against the, the uh, warlord that's down the road a, a couple of kilometers. And that's their life. It's very much a different culture. It's it is very much a warrior culture still. That the right. pinnacle of what you can do is fight for your tribe, and right. um, I think it started to change a little bit um, with some of the things that we did. But it is hard to change millennia of history in twenty years. Yes, <clears throat> and there are, as you know, there are many different. Um, uh, 
backgrounds. They're not all Afghans. They're all kinds of things. They're Tajiks. They're Pashtuns. They're Dari. They're Uzbeks. They're, they're uh, I mean, it's, uh, the culture is full of, and they're, frankly, they're kind of a racist people, very xenophobic of people who are not like them. And um, that causes a great deal of strife and angst inside the community. And I mean, it's, you know, to some extent, you know, we experience the same thing with stuff in the in, uh, United States, but over there, it's it's much more amplified. And, um, you know, people who are not of the same nationality in, in the one tribe in Afghanistan are generally not regarded in the same as a Pashtun would in with a group of Pashtuns. Yeah, I think that's really important and something that most people who haven't been part of this conflict and deployed there don't understand because we think of the Afghan war as a war against a country, just in a broad sense. And Afghanistan politically is, seems to me at least much more multiple different tribes with a very loose association based on geography. Like you and I will identify as you might be in St. Louis, but you're still an American and would still claim that as an identity. But most Afghans, Afghan as an identity is very low on their list of things that they would say that they were, if it's even on the list at all, that that loyalty is much stronger to family and their tribe or village than the country. And it's and so instead of one Afghan war, it was really 10,000 tiny wars with a whole bunch of different Warlords. For people that are seeing these patients that are coming into the country, what are some of the common things that you're going to see in these Afghan uh, evacuees? Malaria and parasites. <laughs> I mean, not just not just worms, but I mean worms that have you know consumed the liver or the colon or the heart, and um, you know, and they they still have. There are still people that have you know, rheumatoid arthritis and things like that, that, you know, they're crippled with, but they have no diagnosis of, but I think it'd be, it's going to be really challenging for people to, to receive these uh, refugees. And um, I mean, I know what's going on on the basis, you know, there's, there's a field hospital and all these places and they're coming in, you know, with, uh, I got this, I got that, I got this. And hopefully most of it's functional, but there are still going to be people with, you know, birth defects and, uh, and you know some some cancers and things like that. There there are going to be there, and especially in little kids. Yeah. So I remember for our local nationals at Bagram, whenever we'd have somebody come in, like your admission order set, we gave everybody albendazole. Um, it was always kind of a fun trick to play on the new anesthesiologist to not tell them that apparently the ascariasis really disliked the inhaled anesthetic gases. And would start crawling up and out of the nose. Um, and so that would always freak out the new anesthesiologist if you didn't tell them. But that was a really common thing when these patients would go to the operating room to have those um, roundworms starting to come out. Yep. Um, the other thing that I remember was a really big issue we had to deal with was malnutrition. And for these big trauma patients who were already very malnourished, trying to get them nutritionally optimized so that they could heal from their big traumas was a really big uh, challenge. Yeah. Curiously, there's a, there's very little HIV. Uh, um, I mean, they just, 
that's not that kind of a culture. You know what I mean? They're, mm-hmm. The men are not exposed to women and they're exposed to each other, but they're not exposed to outside men. So, you know, there's, there's not a lot of that. Um, rarely see somebody with hepatitis. Usually it's hepatitis A, infectious hepatitis, but th- there are, you know, there's a lot of drug use, a lot of IV drug use, a lot of heroin, especially in Western Afghanistan, but that's the main source of uh, finance for the Taliban. And it's still a, a huge, huge uh, industry for them. And that's how it fuels their, their activities. I also remember seeing patients that would come in that it had remote traumas that didn't heal correctly. Um, I remember we had one gentleman that had had a leg fracture, had a, um, looking at the x-ray, it must've been a tib-fib fracture and healed at a really unusual angle. So his foot was almost 90 degrees from where it should have been. And it was really kind of fascinating to see that, yeah, it healed. It didn't do hot, but it's there. Yeah. Um, we did see, uh, we did see some of that. Um, some, uh, bronchopleurocutaneous fistulas, some people with, uh, you know, short gut syndrome, bowel obstructions, stuff like that from being shot in the past. Um, the, uh, if somebody lost a limb, if you lost two limbs, you've, if you lost two legs, your mortality in six months was like a hundred percent. There was just no way, even though the, it wasn't the stumps that you, nobody could take care of you. And, um, you know, they're bed rest the whole time until they wear a, you know, a pressure ulcer down stage four and it gets infected and that's how you die. Yeah. But there's just little else you can do. There's no prosthetics. There's, um, you know, very minimal type stuff like that. You mentioned a oh. uh, female physician, by the way, there was a female physician, a chief of surgery, in fact, in, in Mirwise hospital in Kandahar city who, we used to have conferences with her. She was amazing. And she curiously, she was extremely well-respected. In other words, uh, and she could speak English and she was, uh, I'm not sure what her training was, but they did like eight C-sections every day in that hospital. Wow. <laughs> and delivered like three or 400 babies a month. And uh, she was the one that was doing all that stuff. And I don't know where she is now, but I remember she she was famous, you know, and they respected her curiously, and had no they didn't treat her like a woman, I guess, and because uh, she was a she was a surgeon. Interesting. Everybody knew who she was, and, she, and uh, she'd come out the A hospital from time to time. And well, and I think that's probably a, an important point to think about too. That for the Afghan women we expect that they are probably going to have very poor health care because there are so few women physicians that were allowed to care for them. So any type of uh, GYN care, any type of women's health care issues, yes. we should probably expect that they just weren't addressed. No, it's very extremely minimal. I remember one of my ophthalmologists that I was deployed with um, early on in our deployment, we took care of uh, a child, about a four or five-year-old that was involved in a backpack bombing. Um, Somebody left a backpack in the middle of the market and he had a huge eye injury. And so my ophthalmologist took him to the OR multiple times. And and throughout that time that we were there, he 
worked with, worked trying to get this kid glasses because after his eye injury, obviously his eyesight was really quite poor. And I remember as they were trying to figure out how do they get these glasses made? Because that's not something that the Americans brought over. There was the ability to make lenses and tests for all of this stuff. And about towards the end of the time that we were there, um, the glasses finally came in and, and you want to talk about Coke bottles. Those things were like bulletproof glass thickness. And when that kid was finally put them on, he was able to walk. And I remember talking with Mark and he said, I'm an ophthalmologist. I don't save lives, but I saved that kid because the difference between being able to see well enough to walk without somebody guiding you and having to be led everywhere you go is literally the difference between life and death because there's just not enough. Yeah. Yes, uh, the, uh, it was funny. The, uh, I mean, you'd think a lot of the Afghans need glasses, and I'm sure they do. And um, and at the uh, at, at the ANA hospital where I was, where I was, there was some kind of a, I'll never forget this device. It was like a, it was a thing that would automated would take a prescription for eyeglasses, and hmm. all it needed was a technician to push a few buttons, and a prescription would come out, and you, we'd send it up to Kabul, and you know, a few weeks later on, a, on an Afghan transport, some glasses would show up and people would put them on. <laughs> I had no idea how accurate it was. I had no idea if it helped them, but, but it was funny because we had, uh, they did have a machine there that would, you know, give you a, a, a lens prescription. And they, my guess hmm. is they're probably just, you know, not ground lenses, but they were just, you know, general things yeah. that people use maybe to read or I don't know. Interesting. But. Any other tips? I remember one of the things that kicked off this entire conversation between you and I was your Facebook post talking about stop calling them Afghanis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, what else uh, do we need to know? People keep doing that because, you know, people know Pakistanis and they know Iraqis. And so they think Af you know, Afghanis are people from Afghan, but they're, that's that's actually what they call their money. That's the currency. And um, so, I know, it's just one of those things, this little bugaboo that uh, every time I hear somebody, I mean, the president does it. They do it on Fox. I've been writing letters to Fox. And stuff. Would you please tell the talent to stop using the word Afghans? It's, you know, it's it's ignorant. You know, they're not Afghanis. So, anyway, they're, they're getting better at it, I've noticed. In fact, I had one. One of the uh, one of the commentators once on one of the news shows. Oh, I didn't mean to say Afghani. That's the currency. I'm sorry. I apologize. Afghans. <laughs> Maybe Excellent. that was one of my letters that I sent in to the to the producers. But anyway. but I mean, it's such a little thing that we we giggle about. But it's important. Uh, it's yeah, important and a sign of respect for these people. Yes, very much so. You know, this was a question that a patient of mine actually asked me a few weeks ago, and uh, it kind of caught me off guard. It was right when everything was um, about ready to uh, happen in Kabul. And he asked me, what do you remember? What do you miss about Afghanistan? And it kind of set me back on my heels because everybody likes to ask about, you know, did you see people die? Yes. I was in the emergency room. Of course I saw people die. Did you kill anybody? And I'd say, no, I tried not to, at least not intentionally. But that was a question that I'd never been asked before, which is what did you miss about it? So that's my question for you. Well, 
I would say <laughs> um, being with the Afghans was absolutely the highlight of my career. And when I was on the ground with them, I mean, I don't know if you remember the article it was put in the in the uh, Melkor newsletter, but I mean, I was uh, I was Edward of Kandahar. I was trying to read that in your um, thing, and it was too blurry, so I'm going to have to find the link, and I'll drop that link in the show notes. I might have a copy somewhere I'll send you, but basically, it's just that day and night, every day, there was something to do, something happening, somebody needing something, and it was just constant, you know, and I mean, you're, you're away from home, you're living in a shack, and uh, you have nothing else to do but to go to work, and you have your team, and you try to put things together, you don't have a lot of resources, and so just solving problems and, and trying to get from day to day and teaching somebody something. And, you know, my team, I used to, I used to try to, uh, you know, lament that, um, you know, it seemed like what Afghanistan needs is a reformation, you know, and someday somebody's going to come along and they're going to stop all this, you know, this, uh, you know, religious, uh, secularism, you know, this non-secularism and, um, uh, maybe that mullah who's going to do that is the son of somebody you're going to try to help who's, you know, shot up, blown up or something like that. And if you, you know, if he has a life, he may, his, he may be the great grandfather of somebody who does that and reforms that culture because that's what it's going to take as there's no other way around it. It's so, it's so parochial. It's so biased. And, um, you know, they, um, I think you're right. I think we knew in 2013 it was, and I'm sure you probably knew when you were there too, that most of that country was just biding their time until we left. Yeah, it was a blast being there. It really was. A, it was a very, uh, very unique opportunity. I know it was tough, especially being gone that long, but I'm, I am, I've often said that it is so hard to be gone, but deployment is the best best professional experience I've ever had in my life by far. It certainly helps you appreciate what we got back here that most Americans will never, ever see. Yes. The advantages that we have are, it's hard to imagine a world so different. What do you think the legacy of what work you did there will be? Do you think that those things that you shared in that hospital will bear fruit? What do you think that's going to look like? Well, I don't know. We, I mean, there were several teams. There were a couple teams came after us and one team before us trying to set up the hospital. I have no idea what's going on there now. But uh, I know we did try to help people to learn and how to tr- understand how things work. And, and some of them moved on to Kabul. But what, they, what the Taliban is going to do with all this ANA, I mean, I presume the whole system is defunct now. And how these people are going to survive and earn a living and feed their families. You know, I mean... Uh, that's pretty much everybody talks about, you know, why did the Afghan army fold so fast when uh, we were getting ready to leave? I mean, there weren't really an army. There was just like a militia. They were like a ragtag group. It was, it was a, it was, it was almost basically a jobs program. And in Afghanistan, you only had a couple of choices. You either join the NSF or you join the Taliban and you, uh, you know, you uh, pick poppies and, and, and that's, that's the way you feed your family. One of those two things. You join the ANA, the ANP, or you join the Taliban. It's not, it's just business. It's not personal. <laughs> it's not, it's not nationalism. They just, they just, they just need money. 
I think you're exactly right. And again, it's looking at it through our American lens and not realizing that you're right. That's pretty much what's available there. And now what, now what do they got? They got nothing. I mean, I don't know. They're going to go back the way it was 20, 30 years ago. It's my guess. And there's probably going to be a civil war and, um, you know, warlords are going to take up arms against the guy down the road. And, um, it's going to be terrible, I think. Yeah. And hard to know that we left, that some of those people that helped us are still there. You worry about them. Yeah. I worry about them a lot. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, I hear they're coming out of the woodwork finding me because they're trying to get back. But I think it's amazing that uh, we're willing to take people who weren't necessarily, you know, contractors for the coalition, but they're just people in the community that want out. And, yeah. um, so, I mean, it's going to keep going. It's going to be a lot of people that are going to want to come back. And I think they'll, pro- they'll probably assimilate. They'll probably figure things out. They'll, but it'll be entirely different from what they've ever seen before. Yeah. I think it's very sad for the future of Afghanistan because, as we talked about before, all of the people with the the skills and the tools needed to rebuild that country are currently fleeing. They're fleeing. That's right. And they will take that culture and those skills and all of the good things that they could have in Afghanistan or that they could um, use to rebuild Afghanistan and take those to other places. And we get to hopefully be the lucky recipients of some of that. But it's uh, it's sad to know that their country misses out on that. Yeah. And it's a paradox, too, because that that country is rich with natural resources. And they could, I mean, if you could go over there and, and, uh, you know, mine the lithium and mine the copper and everything else that happened, it's just, but they don't understand it. They don't know what it could do for them. They don't, they don't, uh, they don't get it. And that's, I think that's very important. They are happy in the ways that they have been living for millennia. And maybe it's not our place to tell them that it should be different. You've now you're taking care of patients in the VA healthcare system. Um, have you seen any changes, any impact on the VA patients that you've been taking care of on the veterans over what's been going on the last few weeks? Well, that's been talked about and it's been, uh, we've got a lot of briefings on it and probably at some level, but I have not personally seen people and we don't have a lot of young people, very few. Most of our veterans are all over 65 probably 75, 80% of our patients in the emergency department are elderly. So, mm-hmm. you know, they're Vietnam era, Korea era, very rarely World War II. There are some younger guys, but and a lot of them mental health dis- problems, obviously, drugs and alcohol. But I haven't really seen anybody articulate that they're upset about, you know, losing a limb or, you know, coming back with PTSD be- for a cause that, you know, is now defunct. I have not personally, but but the, but they're talking. They're talking about it. There, there's all kinds of programs to have, uh, you know, veterans who are feeling that angst to be able to call in, talk about it. You know, the, the usual kind of, you know, support groups and things. But personally, I have not seen it. I know I reached out to the the people that I was deployed with um, as this was all coming down because you're right. It it felt. It, it was definitely very sad to see that work fall apart, but I think that most of us have shared that, that 
feeling, especially getting to be on the medical side of we get to wear the white hat just about anywhere we go. Um, we don't have to be the shooters. We don't have to make those hard choices. We just get to care for people. Mm-hmm. And that that's a little bit easier, I think. Yeah, it's uh, a lot of U.S. blood and treasure and international blood and treasure went right over the dam. And uh, it's fantastic. It's just fantastic. Yeah. That uh, we, we took a step back in time. How are you doing with it? Well, I worry about the people that are over there and um, the, my friends. And and uh, I was uh, I was working on a uh, – I was going to take some leave and I was going to fly to Islamabad, Pakistan, rent a car, go across the border. <laughs> I had it all worked out to do that. And my wife whispered my ears, if you do that, I'll break all your fingers. <laughs> 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 I'm guessing she wasn't excited about that idea. Yeah. You knew it was shootout. And, uh, but I found one of my interpreters, the, the paramedic from Houston, he was in Kabul and he was trying to get his family out. He did successfully. And uh, they're all scattered all over the world, but they're all out. But I just yeah. felt like I had to try to do something and I didn't know what it was, but I, <laughs> but I wanted to try to, I think I could have pulled it off, to tell you the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Except for your wife. <laughs> she would have had something to say. But uh, anyway, yeah, it's um, it's very disquieting. I think but- that's a common feeling amongst a lot of us. And, and we certainly saw that that a lot of different veterans groups stood up and, and worked to help people get out. Yeah. And I, I think there's it's an interesting and telling um, feeling that we all have to want to say we're not quite done yet. We're still willing to help. Yeah, yeah. I think probably uh, I'm probably involved in the care of probably 2,000 casualties altogether, 500 level one traumas when I was a bastion, and just the limbs in the in the in the bin of uh, you know not just not just U.S. people U.S. servicemen but Afghans. It's just uh, it's just so pathetic when you realize all the resources were involved and all the expenditure and. And all the people that got maimed and killed, it's like, what did we do that for? What were we thinking? And um, we probably went, as we're so common to do, so we're so fond to do is to go overboard a bit like uh, Clark W. Griswold and say, okay, let's let's build a Walmart here in downtown uh, Kandahar City, you know, so. No, I think you're right that those of us who have gone to the trauma hospitals and, and had those types of deployed experiences, when we come back out here into the real, into the civilian world, I remember we had a rollover MVC where somebody lost a limb, uh, lost an arm. Now oh, it's been a year ago or so. And here that's a once in a lifetime type of a injury that you see. And there's a lot of physicians here in the United States that never see that. And that's just what we did every three every hours. <laughs> it wasn't just every day. Some days it was multiple. Yeah. Um, I remember I was uh, taking care of a patient who had like a hand black. He'd crushed his hand with a forklift, um, with forks of a forklift. So I was sewing him up and they brought a nine line to me about a patient that was coming in and I was sewing and I kind of was reading over my shoulder and I said, Oh, that's just a foot amputation. We don't need to run it as a trauma. It's no big deal. And the patient that I was working on said, 
just a foot amputation, that's not a big deal. And I said, no, around here, you got to lose two or three before we even get excited about that. And it's definitely a, a, an experience that, uh, especially the ER docs that deployed, it's a very different experience. And, and even in a different experience than what the GSTs and the, the people that are going out now with this new generation of war, um, now thinking that my two wars are, are past, um, the new conflicts that our military physicians are going out on now, they're much different. Um, certainly seeing some significant trauma, but not in the, not in the volume that we saw. Yeah, you're right. And I'm sure the generation before us was likewise different from what we saw. So. Yeah. I remember, um, Jim Paff that was one of my, uh, attendings down at Bamsey. He said that, uh, he actually volunteered, uh, to come back on active duty and wanted to deploy again, because they said, I can't teach these residents to do this kind of medicine in a war that I haven't been to. And I still remember that and remember respecting him tremendously for volunteering to go over to see exactly what we were doing. And we certainly have learned a lot. And I think emergency medicine, I don't think, I know emergency medicine has changed tremendously because of what we learned. Um, yeah. But it's strange to, to be part of that history evolving. Yeah. Any other thoughts or anything else that you'd like to share? I've taken a tremendous amount of your time today, but I've really enjoyed having the chance to talk. Uh, no, I, I think it's, um, I think people, you know, would benefit from knowing the stories and, and hearing the things that went on and, and, uh, and just getting an idea that, you know, it's not the same. It's not, it's not the same as something that goes in a different part of the world. And um, it's going to be difficult and there's going to be a lot of, uh, there's going to be a lot more angst, a lot more horror, unfortunately, and uh, until it all settles down and, and um, it's going to be, uh, we got to, do the best we can and one day after another and, and uh, try to take care of people as best we can teach people as best we can. And um, maybe one day it'll all work out. GSASEP is proud to be the premier continuing medical education source for military and federal emergency physicians to purchase CME for the episode you just listened to. Please click on the link in the show notes. The Government Services Chapter of the American College of Emergency Physicians promotes quality emergency care and enhances the development of emergency physicians who serve our nation from training through retirement. Learn more about our chapter at www.gsacep.org.